Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 1. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand, that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a, as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold, golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall, be, shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. And it shall be as the chaste roe, and as a sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man turn to his own people, and flee every one into his own land. Every one that is found shall be thrust through, and every one that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the meads against them, which shall not regard silver. And as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye shall not spare children. And Babylon... The glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, 
and satyrs shall dance there. The wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons in their pleasant palaces. And her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this solemn reading from his word. Our Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples and he told us that all scripture speaks of him. And it is our peculiar blessing, a blessing granted to the Lord's people to discover the Saviour at times and in places unexpected. We should always be on the lookout for the Saviour in the Scriptures. It ought to be a prayer of the Lord's elect that the Holy Spirit would all the time be showing us more of the Lord Jesus Christ, more of his glory, more of his love, more of his grace and his kindness and his mercy. We shall spend eternity getting to know and love our husband and we do well to begin that process now. Let it be our prayer and the desire of our heart that we should learn more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now many people who read the chapter before us today will see it in a harsh way. We'll see it as little more than the brutal account of warfare and suffering and destruction. And many indeed may choose to pass over such a passage as merely an ancient story from an age long gone which bears little relevance to the Lord's New Testament gospel of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I've heard such people say that they do not read these Old Testament passages because there's too much of blood and there's too much of battles and warfare. And they prefer the life of Christ and they prefer the words of Christ and his miracles and the Gospels and the Apostles. I hope that we have better judgment than that. The people of God see Christ in all the scripture and are themselves united as fellow citizens with the saints of all ages. These 
to whom Isaiah was writing are our brothers and sisters in the Lord just as much as you and I are today who have the privilege of worshipping together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are our brothers and sisters and we are united with them. These words were written to them and we have this union together in the Lord Jesus Christ that transcends the centuries and the miles. We understand ourselves to be of the household of God and we understand ourselves to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. That as the household of God, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The point is that you can't admire Paul and ignore Isaiah. We take this testimony as one. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed to us in so many ways and manners according to his dealings with his people through the ages. And today I want us to notice three things about what is written here in this chapter 13 of Isaiah. I want us to think about why the Holy Spirit felt it necessary to record these burdens. Now I've spent a little bit of time anticipating th these chapters in the, the note that I wrote yesterday. So I'll, I, once again I, I refer you to that. It, it's uh, explanatory of some of the aspects of what these burdens are about. But these burdens, just as surely as the Gospels and the Epistles, as they are comprised in God's Word, are for our doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. The prophecies are called burdens and they take up the next ten chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah. Their visions received by Isaiah concerning the destruction of the nations and the peoples around about him for the punishment of their sins. They're called burdens because they're heavy and they're weighty sentences upon the Lord's enemies and the enemies of his church. And the title that Isaiah gives them of burdens suggests that the prophet himself found them neither easy nor agreeable. Very often a preacher sent by God must deliver a message which is neither easy nor agreeable to him. And yet these are the things of the Lord and the things that are to be stated before men and women. And these visions were given, these prophecies were recorded 
centuries before the events contained in them took place. These are prophecies. This is Isaiah foretelling what is going to happen. In fact, there's probably several centuries. It's about 200 years uh, by the time uh, Isaiah gave these prophecies, depending on what part of his life uh, they, they were given to him, and the fulfillment of them. And interestingly, even the nations of which he speaks had in some cases not even come to the height of their glory. It was like little peoples, rather insignificant nations that he was speaking about. And people would have said, well, why are you speaking about these little nations, Isaiah, when there are bigger nations uh, uh, around? For example, he speaks here about Babylon first and foremost, when we would have thought that Assyria that had been the nation spoken of in earlier chapters, would be foremost in his mind. But the reality is that by this time Assyria had been destroyed and Babylon was in its ascendancy when Isaiah is speaking of these burdens. So very, the very first one, the first one that we have is uh, the burden of Babylon. And because we see that this was a foretelling of events that were yet to take place several hundred years hence, we see the explicit hand of God in the delivery of these prophecies. There are more burdens, as I've mentioned, that will follow. There is a burden of Assyria. There is a burden of Philistia. There's one concerning Moab. There's one concerning Damascus and Ethiopia and Egypt. There is another about Elam. There is one about Media, the land of the Medes and the Persians. There's one about Arabia. There is one about Tyre and Sidon, the cities of the, the coast. And finally, Isaiah will speak of the judgment of the world in the end times. So from this we see that Isaiah is looking at all the kingdoms around about Judah and Israel and declaring that God's judgment will fall upon them for their sin and for their idolatry. While at the same time the faithful prophet holds forth a grander purpose of deliverance and redemption and glory by a child yet to be born and a son yet to be given. You see, we don't read these passages without putting them in the context of that which Isaiah has already been speaking of in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9, where he has told us of the coming Messiah and the deliverance that will follow and flow from him. Furthermore, as Isaiah speaks about the destruction of the kingdoms of these nations, so he elevates the kingdom and the governance and the glory and the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the two things that 
are operating side by side in Isaiah writing these passages as he does. He is declaiming against the nations and he is lifting up the Lord before the people to whom he writes. And that's an interesting point as well because these burdens, these prophecies, were not written for the nations that are mentioned in them. They weren't written for the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Elamites and the Arabians and the Medes and the Persians. They were written for principally Judah and the house of Israel. And if we want to be even more particular, they were essentially, as the whole of God's word is, for the elect of God and for the remnant people that the kindness of God and the goodness of God and the mercies of God are primarily directed towards. So that by these prophecies, it's the Lord's own people that would learn that there is no world power, be it ever so great, that will stand before the glory of God or will be allowed to oppose his people indefinitely. There would be an accountability that would be laid at the feet of these nations and God would charge them for their wickedness. This knowledge then delivered to the remnant was designed by God through the prophet Isaiah to comfort God's elect by showing them how precious they were to him and how he would condemn and judge the nations who did them harm. The knowledge would comfort God's elect and they must not interpret the world around them in the immediate moment in which they were living. But they must, on the basis of what Isaiah is saying, step back to see the purposes of God being worked out over centuries and indeed millennia. And there's lessons there for us as well. The people of Isaiah's day would be reminded that God is in control and his grace and his mercy is for a particular people, the people of his choice, the people of his covenant. So this brings us to the points that I want to leave with you today. And I've just got three and I'm, I'm aware of the time as, as, as usual and, and I'll bring these points to you quickly. But I think that we learn from these chapters or the, the, the people of God did in those days and we can uh, uh, draw uh, these conclusions also. These three points and I think they will do our souls good just to dwell on them briefly. The first thing is this, that we learn about the character of God from these verses. We learn first of all that he is holy. Holiness 
is the motive and the cause of God's judgment. And this chapter is all about judgment. These burdens reflect punishment for sin and are explicitly said to come as a destruction from the Almighty. This is God at work here. Now, by this means, Isaiah reminds us all that the God with whom we have to do is holy, pure and perfect. And he will by no means clear the guilty. Now, you might say, well, did the people of God, did the Jews, did the people of Israel, did they not know that God was holy already? Did they not know that fact? Did they not know that from their history? Did they not know that from the law? Sure they did. Sure they did. Those who had eyes to see would understand the nature of God from the sacrifices and, and from the, the law that was given and from other prophets that had spoken, uh, from, 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 from David's uh, ministries and, and the way the Lord dealt with, with his servant. But there is no greater reinforcement as to the holiness of God than in seeing judgment performed. Let me, let me just point something out to you here, which I think is interesting, on, on the basis of seeing judgment performed. Our Saviour did not ordain that we remember and celebrate his resurrection. And that is what the world is building up to do now in the coming uh, week. They are going to be celebrating Easter. They are going to be celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not knocking that. But I am saying this, that the Lord didn't say to his people, remember my resurrection. He said, remember my death. The Lord would have us remember his death in our communion regularly, frequently, the blood and the body, because Christ's death showed both the holiness of God and the love of Christ for his people. The punishment of the wicked testifies to the holiness of God. And it was our wickedness that was placed on Christ, that was punished and judged in Christ. And therefore, it bespeaks the holiness and the perfection of God. The men of Beth Shemesh, we were speaking a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant uh, a little while ago. And uh, the men of Beth, Beth Shemesh took the... Uh, Ark of the Covenant when it came back from the land of the Philistines after it had been taken in battle. And those men opened the lid. They opened the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and they peeked inside. And the Lord slew many of them. And here's what the men of Beth, Beth Shemesh said uh, when the Lord slew many of them, having transgressed that holy artifact, that holy instrument 
of the tabernacle. They said this, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? When judgment comes, the reaction of men will be, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? So the fact of this passage shows the holiness of God. It also shows that God is sovereign. Now we're going to come back to this in another sermon because another sermon on another day because Isaiah makes a lot of it. The sovereignty of God. This isn't preaching the sovereignty of God isn't a new thing. Isaiah was doing it many many years ago. But we know it the frequency in this chapter of Isaiah using I and me as the Lord speaks and confirms his direct involvement in the accomplishment of these events. It's the Lord who determines who shall rise and who shall fall, who shall live and who shall die. He raises kings and he removes them according to his will. He lifts up empires and he brings empires down. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Men think that they're able to, to act with authority, act with, with free will, act as free agents and do the things that they want. But the Lord is in control and that's what this passage teaches. The Lord here speaks of sanctified ones. Men and nations set apart to do his will, to do his bidding. And that doesn't impugn God's holiness in any way. The brutality that the Medes and the Persians would enact upon the Babylonians, as it is described here in this chapter, rose out of their own wicked hearts and their own corrupt desires. But to the extent that the Lord enabled it and did not prevent it, we see the employment here, the use being made of one nation to judge another as God accomplished his purpose amongst them. So that reading Isaiah's prophecy left the elect remnant of his day in no doubt of God's strength and power and sovereign will. So they could see his holiness, they could see his sovereignty. And here too was also displayed the love of God and the mercy of God. Because all who understood these matters, all to whom these things were written, knew that they were sinners too. That God should condemn and punish Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and Ethiopia and spare the men and women of Judah was not because Judah didn't have any idols. Was not because Judah was righteous or that Judah deserved in some way deliverance. Isaiah's words had already made clear that that was not the case. But rather, it showed covenant grace. It showed the power of God's promises 
to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It showed that there was a love of God that was particular and was specific to a certain people that caused him to deal differently with one nation than another. That caused him to distinguish between people and revealed to the elect remnant the nature of particular grace. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The Lord said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And here was an object lesson in that statement. The people, the remnant, the the Jews, they could see these very things before their eyes as the Lord had mercy upon them and had compassion upon them while judging these nations by these burdens that are expressed. And thus here, the Lord's elect learned about God's love and grace as a comfort for the remnant people. And by providing Isaiah with this vision, God gave Israel and God gave Judah grounds for comfort during their exile by giving them hope and promising that a remnant would be delivered from that exile and would be able to return to the land of promise. So that these chapters reveal the character and the nature of God that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is selectively gracious according to his covenant will. That's my first point. Here's the second one. There's another lesson here too for these Old Testament believers and for us with them. We learn to interpret world events properly. We learn to interpret world events properly. And I say I say this modestly because none of us can rightly interpret the signs of the times. But the lesson is surely the lesson is not to be anxious about what the future holds, but to realize That the rise and fall of nations is in the will and according to the purpose of God. As he accomplishes his judgment and redeems his elect. Because that's what it's about. It's about accomplishing his judgment and redeeming his elect. So let me make this clear. For us, let us apply it to to ourselves. Were we to change the names in these burdens to read America rather than Assyria, Britain rather than Babylon, China rather than Media, or replace Egypt with North Korea? What would these prophecies, what would these burdens be saying then to the Lord's elect? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. 
that God commands his sanctified ones, his tools, his weapons of war. He calls to his mighty ones to do his bidding. He whistles to stir up the meats. He shakes the earth to bring judgment upon the wicked and deliverance for his elect. So that when we look around about us in the world today, that is what is happening in world events. This is the unfolding of perhaps decades, centuries, millennia of God accomplishing his purpose amongst the nations. These things were written to men and women to give them perspective over a long period of time of the fact that God, who is holy, was sovereignly accomplishing his will, but did so with the love and grace and mercy of his people at heart. And that's the same message for you and me today. Let the Lord's people recognise this. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. This world is not our home. Whether we're British or American or, or, or what we might be, this world is not our home. Hebrews 13, 14 tells us, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And let me press that just a little bit more. And I speak to myself here, I speak to my own heart, as I trust I speak to yours. If the big things in this world, if the, the nations and the levers of, of governance in this world are in the Lord's hands and we are under his safekeeping, why do we become so anxious for the little things or the big things? Christ keeps the sparrows flying. He, he bedecks the, the lilies and keeps them blooming. He keeps the world turning until his purposes are complete. He knows how to feed his people and he knows how to bring us to himself. And that might be on bended knee or that might be on the back of a chariot. But he will bring his elect to himself. And we who are the Lord's people need not worry about intrusive government or fret about viruses or be bothered about town planners. If God brings about World War III, it will be in order to judge his enemies and bless his church. And you and I who trust in him, we will be safe. To the Lord's people, these prophecies revealed God's blessed character and they comforted them in the crazy, topsy-turvy, Iron Age world in which they lived. And we might live in the age of nuclear and of AI, artificial intelligence, but God is wiser than AI and God is more powerful than nuclear and we don't have to worry. Faith ought to give us peace. And our final point today 
is that Isaiah also pointed these dear folk, the people of his age and the ages following, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Christ, thirdly, we see Christ, we see the Saviour foreshadowed and framed in a blessed light in these chapters. You see, Christ is precious to the souls of his people because we see our interest in him as our bridegroom and as our head. He has become to us more desirable than all the riches of this world. More desirable is Christ than all the riches of this world. Oh, people have ambitions, people have aspirations, people want to get rich, they want to be famous, they want to be celebrities, they want whatever it is that they want out of this life, out of this world. You know what? The elect, the elect aren't bothered about that. The elect long for Christ. He has become to us more desirable than all the riches of this world. And here, as the Lord unfolded to his people details of the coming judgment for sin, he doesn't forget our weakness. It's as if the Lord is saying in this chapter to Isaiah to say to his people, in the midst of wrath, I will remember mercy. And he says in verse 12, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. The reality is that God's judgment and the exercise of God's judgment, the exercise of God's wrath, frightens sin-sensitive spirits far more than the hardened souls of the reprobate. And as a result, when the Lord announces judgment against sin, invariably it's the righteous that are most afraid. And therefore the Lord never speaks of judgment without pointing to Christ because he's always speaking to his elect. So speaking of the dreadful punishment that should take place for sin, the Lord points his dear people to look to his son, to look to the child who would be born, to the son that would be given. And he reminds us that our redemption draweth nigh. Isaiah did it then to the people that he was writing to. And the Lord Jesus Christ in his own ministry, when he did come, repeated this self-same thing when he was anticipating amongst the men and women of his own age the imminent Roman destruction of Jerusalem. He says to them, and I say it to you today, brothers and sisters, when these things begin to come to pass, 
then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. The Lord's people, when we begin to see judgment, and surely there are so many evidences of the judgment of God in this world today. When we begin to see these things come to pass, the Lord's elect don't become preoccupied with them, but lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. God has made the Lord Jesus Christ more precious to his people than fine gold. Therefore, I choose to see Christ here in this reference. Other commentators speak differently about this verse. I'm going to side with Robert Hawker on this matter. He also gives this interpretation that this is Christ that can be seen. And if he can be seen, then he should be seen in this 12th verse of Isaiah 13. Robert Hawker says this, Then shall my people look unto him whom they have pierced and mourn, and then shall the man Christ, my fellow, be more precious than fine gold, even this one identical man, the Lord our righteousness, than the golden wedge of of Ophir. Ophir was a region famed in the ancient world for the quality of its gold. We don't actually know where it was. Um, But uh, regardless of that, the Lord Jesus Christ is more precious to us than a wedge of the finest gold of Ophir. Such is the man, God's fellow, whom he sends forth to be the Redeemer. Of his people. When judgment for sin is all around, the elect of God have but one place to hide, one hope to hold, one comfort to rest on and enjoy. And we look to the precious man with the precious blood who hung on the cross. Yes, We lament that it was our sin that nailed him there, but we praise the love that kept him there. The church says of Christ in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 11, his head is as the most fine gold. Such is our admiration of him. We, we, We look to the finest things to describe our Lord, but he is worth more to us than the finest gold. Men desire gold for its value. Christ's value to the sinner is life and not death. Men admire gold for its shine. Christ's value to a sinner is eternal glory. Men seek gold to become rich. Christ's sheep delight in the richness of God's grace. And in Christ who came to seek and to save that which is lost. And some men give all that they have for gold. And Christ gave all that he had for us. Brothers and sisters, though we have little of this world's wealth, yet having Christ, we possess all things. 
God has made his fellow a man more precious than fine gold. He has made him unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Amen.